Okay, let's, let's go ahead and get started. We'll just let people come as they come. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm Joe Helt. I'm in my third year, final year at the Pastors College. Um, and I'll be teaching this week and one of the weeks in November. So if you don't like today, just be aware it's happening again. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll get going this morning. Father, thank you for your grace to us this morning. Thank you for your word. God, we ask that you'd make it real and alive to us. We ask that you would help us to see the truth of it and the goodness of it. And God, that you would apply it to our hearts so that we could live uh, in ways that glorify you and that we'd be made more like your son this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're in First uh, Timothy 4 this morning, starting a new chapter today. And uh, I figured I would just start by reading. I gotta get... Also, you're gonna have to bear with me. Uh, I think it has been approximately 20 years since I've used PowerPoint, maybe a little bit more. So I, I don't really know how to get this thing done. And uh, my slides are probably not as up to par as some others. So 1 Timothy 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. Um, so I'm going to read the whole section and then we're going to come back and just kind of break it down. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. And pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Okay, so we're back at in verses one and two. Um, the Spirit explicitly saying these things. Um, I think Paul here is, is probably not uh, directly referencing the Old Testament. I think instead he's probably referencing some of the letters of the New Testament, specifically the Gospels. Um, things like Matthew 24 where it says, um, at that time many will fall away. This is Jesus speaking. At many, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And Jesus said many things like this uh, throughout his ministry. Um, and I think Paul is probably referencing that, but he's also maybe even referencing the things that he knows personally. Uh, so in Acts 20, when he's talking to the Ephesian elders, and you remember where Timothy is currently, right? Where is he at? He's in Ephesus, right? Good, you guys remembered one thing so far from the, the teaching. Nailed it, John. You can, you can check out the rest of the time. 
I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So I think, I think Paul has in mind, obviously, the whole of the Bible when he says the Spirit explicitly says. But I think specifically, he, he's either referencing, I think, the New Testament letters and the Gospels or himself knowing what the Spirit explicitly says. He knows that this is going to happen. And this letter largely has been about that, right? He starts out the letter, beware of false teachers and myths and genealogies and don't go on in this foolish babble. And then now he, after he's kind of gone through chapters 2 and 3 of, of showing what godliness mostly is for men and women, overseers, deacons, now he kind of lays out more specifically what this false teaching is going to be. Um, so back to... Yeah, okay. Sorry, this is... I'm going to try not to look at the screen, but I just don't... It's very uncomfortable for me. And I apparently am blind and can't read that. I need to go get my eyes checked again. Um, So the Spirit explicitly says in later times that many will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And I think this is an important point to note. So we, we tend to think of doctrine that is wrong or, or doctrine that we might even call heresy or heterodoxy or things that concern us about other men's teaching, we don't often directly link it to demonic activity. And because we don't directly link it to demonic activity, we think it's really not as bad as it maybe is. We think, well, this is just, this is not good. But, it, but when you put the, the idea that it's, it's not just not good, it's actually demonic. It is devilish. It is from Satan. And you think back to the earliest, right? The earliest doctrine of demons. The earliest devil words. Did God really say? Did God really say? You realize that that is exactly what is going on with all false doctrine and all false teaching today. It's what has been going on and it was what was going on in Paul's day. It's what he's referencing. It's what's going on in our day. And in our Western minds, whether we are Christians or not, we tend to dismiss kind of this other reality of the fact that demons are real. Satan is real. His activity is real. And he wages war in the church by means of false teaching. And he has been doing it since the beginning, and he continues to do it. And those doctrines, those doctrines of demons, those deceitful um, spirits are what is actually at work. And so when we, we are refuting doctrine, when you are trying to argue against it, know that you're, this is the principalities and powers that are at war. This is not light work. And I think that's very important for us. We tend to just dismiss what this actually is. And the way that this is introduced, verse 2, it's by means of the hypocrisy of liars. That there are, there are men who make their living lying about these things. And some of them are so seared in their conscience, right, that they don't even realize how much they are lying about the truth. That their consciences are so seared, right? We know in Romans 1 that your conscience can either cry out against you 
or even encourage you in what you think. And these men have been, they've seared the conscience to the point where they believe what they say is actually true and good. They have no doubts about it. I read a couple of years ago, do you, you guys know the name Benny Hinn? Okay, so, right, this, Andy's like, yeah, I'm a follower, I call into the show, it's good. Don't do that anymore. <laughs> Through the screen. Benny, you know, Benny Hinn has unbelievably heretical things to say about many, many, many things. Uh, but one of the things he does, right, is he goes around the world healing, doing these healing services. And his nephew, so the Hinn family, actually, it's more than just Benny. He has, like, brothers that are into this sort of thing in smaller ministries in, like, Canada. Um, so the whole Hinn family is, like, in this big, giant, billion-dollar industry of smearing the faith. And his nephew became a Christian, of all things, and he used to travel with Benny on the private jets to the countries to do these healing services. And then he realized, oh, hey, everything we're doing is a lie. This is all fake. This is not true. This is not real. We are, in fact, not doing the work we're saying we don't, we're doing. And so he's now uh, a pastor out in California. And he wrote an article several years ago about this, exposing his uncle and saying, none of this is real, none of this is true. Uh, but Benny Hinn and many of those men are so completely deluded with their own thoughts and schemes and with the doctrines of demons that they have uh, swallowed and it's become part of them, that their hypocrisy is total, even to their own selves. And then you have just the, the idea that other men knowingly don't do things, right? This is the most dangerous kind, in my opinion. Um, this is stuff that, that Tim constantly warns us in the pastor's college to be aware of, and he warns us as a church to be aware of, that it's, that it's the hypocrisy of not actually telling the whole truth, of, of kind of skirting the edges, of not doing the thing that we know we should do. And that is actually the more dangerous part of the hypocrisy of a liar, that he knows that he's concealing or not revealing all that he should. And these are the men that are the most dangerous in the church because these are the men who actually lead the people in the pews astray. Benny Hinn leads the world astray, right? He has these television programs to the millions and millions who largely are not believers. But the men who actually we should be most concerned about are the men in the pulpit in front of people every Sunday who are the sheep of God, and they are the ones who are doing the demonic by concealing, by not totally giving the truth to people. They lie in what they do. Um, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seated in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Um, and then he gives, let's see, Okay, so the, the last thing, and this is an encouragement to us, um, if you notice, some will fall away from the faith. That He doesn't say everyone is going to fall away. This is the same encouragement that our Lord gave to Elijah, right? After the prophets of Baal, he went and slew 450 prophets of Baal. He goes and runs and hides in the cave. And God says, I have my remnant. I have my 7,000. Some will fall away 
and it shouldn't surprise us, but we should be encouraged that it will not be a, a total falling away. The apostasy of the church is never complete and total. There are always those who uh, mind the gap, mend the fence, fight the war, that maintain the faith. And so that should be an encouragement to us uh, if we think everyone in the world is betraying the gospel. It's just not true. We should not believe that. That, in fact, is a doctrine of demons. Not everyone in the world is an apostate. And so when we get thinking in our minds that we're the only ones, don't believe that. That is a lie. We are not the only ones. You are not the only one um, who believes the truth. Okay, so here are specifics of what these hypocrisy, these liars are teaching. They are men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Does that sound at all familiar with what is happening currently? And did it sound at all familiar in Paul's day, right? Paul wrote consistently about marriage um, and the goodness of it. Jesus talked about marriage and the goodness of it. And it really all boils down to Yes. Genesis 1.28, right? The fountain from which we get all marriage and fruitfulness. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The only way to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and not come under the condemnation of God for sin is to be married. Marriage is in fact good and right and true, and it is from the beginning. And so anyone who speaks against marriage speaks against the entirety of the testimony of Scripture. This is literally chapter one. This is like going to grade school and learning to read. This is foundational to the truth. And yet we fall for it over and over. The church consistently falls for it. Uh, They were falling for it in Paul's day. We are falling for it currently. Uh, The homosexual and transgender stuff where they're encouraging men and women to not marry. That's the solution to your problem. Don't get married. Just, that's not, and when Paul actually gives a solution for the problem of burning with sexual urges is actually to get married. And so you see that it's not new and it's not surprising that this is the thing that we're fighting against. This has always been a thing. The church has always had to reestablish this truth because we buck against it. In our generation, it has to do with homosexuality. But in the previous generation, it had to do with no-fault divorce, right? This is my parents' generation, many of your generations, the throwing off of divorce laws in all the 50 states in the 60s and 70s. Um, you have the swinger movement uh, of, of the 20s, right? The, just the, the flappers and stuff who just didn't want to get married. They just want to go out and dance and have fun at these parties in the 20s. Um, it's always there in one form or another that we want to not get married uh, because we don't want the responsibility and the... And the the difficulties that come with marriage, and false teachers lay hold of that desire in whatever generation they're in, 
and they give credence to it. They make it true for us. And so this is where the battle is It's going to always be happening. And right now our battle is against the transgender homosexual abdication of marriage. Um, and it's not good, but it is not new. They also advocate the abstaining from food. Um, there are lots of places you could go with this. I thought about even going back to the Noahic Covenant where God gives all animals to Noah to eat. Um, but here again, it's reiterated in Acts, uh, at the vision of Peter, a voice came to Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. More than likely, what, what Paul's talking about here is, in fact, meat abstention. Um, that was the thing that was causing issues between Jews and Gentiles. The meat that was sacrificed to idols or the eating of pork products or that sort of thing. This was causing consistent tension in the early church. This was, in fact, one of the dividing walls that had to be torn down so there could be unity in the church. Um, I don't think you have to explicitly apply that simply to abstaining from meat. Um, this, again takes form of whatever the current culture is. And so uh, it's, it's a little difficult for me to talk about this, right? Because you can see that I am not one who abstains from food very often. Um, but it is true that our culture preaches this. And many pastors join in. We have an issue. We have a problem with telling people that food of whatever sort is not good. That, it's, that is not good, right? And, and this is what Paul says to this, right? Uh, oops, I told you this is going to get messy. Where is it at? Uh, here we go. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created. God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Is there, is there anywhere that that is stated in Scripture? Here's a hint. Back in Genesis, when that mandate for being married and being fruitful was given, God also said something else quite a few times. Behold, it is good. And when everything was done, it was very good. We don't like the things God made, right? This is a problem with people. We don't like the things God has made. We don't like the things God gives us because of the hardness of our own hearts. And when a pastor taps into that, right, he is doing the work of demonic activity. Think again to the temptation, right? Did God really say, and when she saw that the fruit was good to eat and desirable, she took and ate. That she gets this very strange view of what food is for her, what abstinence really means for her by thinking about uh, the fruit in a way God has said, don't think about it. Everything that God has given us is good. 
And the only things that are not good are the things he tells us are not good, right? This is the law, right? Abstain from these things. And in so doing, you will be more free. Um, I was talking to someone yesterday about this very idea. Um, in, the, in the law is freedom, right? This is something that, that Paul works through and we've been preaching through in, in Romans, right? And you can see this pretty clearly if you just think of a man who is bound up, let's say, in sexual sin, right? And it's causing problems in his marriage, it's causing problems in his kid, kids, it ends in divorce. And then you think, is that man free or not free? Is his wife free or not free? Are his kids free or not free? And so you realize the law that God has given to keep us within bounds was actually for our freedom. And there was only one food that was ever off the table for us. And it really wasn't about the actual fruit. It was about the thing inside Adam and Eve that desired the fruit. But there was only ever one food that God said, don't eat. And then the laws of the Old Testament come, right? The laws of uh, food laws and dietary restrictions. We don't have time to get into all of that. But it's clearly uh, abdicated in the New Testament that this passage in Acts um, that Peter is given not just permission to eat all things, right, but a command to eat all things. And so these are the two areas that false teachers love to, love to harp on, love to hit on. They have loved to do it for two millennia now. Um, let's see here. And so this is the way in which we know that things are good. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by the means of the word of God and prayer. And that prayer is uh, a word for prayer in the Greek that's uh, goodness prayer. It's like a thanksgiving prayer. And so it's the prayer of thanksgiving. So the word of God is simply his declaration that all things are good. This is, this is the word of God. Everything is good and fit to eat. And then the further means we sanctify it is simply by thanking God for the things he gives us. That's how we sanctify the food, by saying thanks. And so your, your dinner tables are not uh, neutral ground for your kids and your families. That's not, that's not a place where we should think it no big deal to say thank you for the food. That is the proper means to teach that everything is good. And so we should not, uh, we should not think lightly of what we usually call grace, right? The saying of grace at a meal. That's not, that's not a small thing. You are, in fact, inoculating your children and your family against doctrines of demons. Realize this when you do things like this, that our, when we are doing what it is to be godly, godliness is the means by which we defeat the enemy. 
And this is a simple act of godliness, right? You don't have to be a super saint to thank God for the good things he's given you. Specifically here in food, but in all things. And we forget it really easily, don't we? Um, I was reminded in the last couple of weeks through the faithfulness of my wife and through Stephen that I am not grateful for the good things God has given me in a, in a thousand ways. And so in, in being not grateful, it's more than just you need to say thanks. It's realizing that all the things God gives us are good. He is the giver of good gifts. And everything good comes from him, right? That's what James says. He is the giver of all good things. So don't neglect to say thanks. Don't neglect prayers at mealtime. These are are the battle, right? And remember it. Um, don't, Don't harp on... Food as a means of sanctification. Food is not the means of sanctification. Thankfulness for food is the means of sanctification. Right? The things you eat do not make you more holy. Being grateful for the things you eat is what makes you more holy. And this is what Paul gets into next. What is godliness? What is the actual thing, the antidote to these things? Um, Okay. Going on, this is is what it then means to be sanctified. This is what it means to do the work of Christ and to not follow the doctrines of demons. And pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith, and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. So here we have uh, the, the callback to what Paul is writing this letter to Timothy for. Right? Don't go after the myths and fables. And here he uses a word uh, calling them old wives' tales. Um, Uh, Some translations, in order to uh, neuter that, just call them fables or um, old tales or uh, uh, myths. But the actual word is old womanish. Um, I don't know exactly what that means, um, so I'm not going to teach on exactly what that means. But there's a reason why Scripture uses that term. Uh, and we should not be afraid to at least say it, that Paul says, don't follow old wives' tales. Don't follow, here in the NASB, uh, worldly fables fit only for old women. Um, the reality is it's very hard to find any help in any of the commentaries. You know, uh, Tim has said this from the pulpit, that a lot of the modern commentaries have no help when things like this. The unfortunate reality is, like, even Calvin doesn't talk about this, not because he's afraid of it, but I think everyone just assumed whatever it is that it meant is what it meant, and so we here are stumbling because we're 500 years removed from anyone who had any clue how to be faithful to the words of God and the way they write about things and think about things. 
So I don't know exactly what that means, but I do know that Timothy is to have nothing to do with these things, to not follow the rabbit down the rabbit hole, so to speak, right? We don't, we don't chase after them. The way to win the battle is not to go down the wormhole and dig around and try and find the way up out of the wormhole. What does he say here? Point out these things. So you point out the general errors, point out the specific errors, but don't, don't spend your time arguing and spatting and back and forthing because there is no end to this. Instead, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and the sound doctrine you have been following. It's an old cliche at this point, but how are counterfeiters taught to know counterfeit? They know the real thing, right? This is, this is how you know what is false, to actually know the real thing, to know what is actually true. Uh, I mentioned that you know, marriage and the goodness of it is elementary level, right? That you read it in Genesis 1, and then in Genesis 2, and then you see it over and over in the genealogies. What is actually happening? Well, they get married and they had kids. That's what happened. Like the genealogies broadly tell us basically one thing. Get married and have kids. And in so doing, you will be fulfilling part of God's call to your life. But the reality is, uh, just like the book of Hebrews warns us, the elementary stuff is what we need many times. That even though we think we should, and we should, I said even though we think, we should be moving on to more doctrines than just this. But then there's also the reality of we have to reiterate the actual true right doctrines. Um, that if we don't, then we forget. You can see this in just thinking through what education looks like. Um, how many of you were in calculus in high school? How many of you can still do calculus? Yeah, well, the, the people that kind of sort of still have a career that is sort of related to math, right? All the rest of us have forgotten it. Now, why have we forgotten it? Time. But also, we don't think it's important to know calculus. We have decided, in my life, calculus, not important. Now, I'm not going to ask the question, how many of you have done algebra? Because I feel like that's actually a testier question. Um, I feel like people hate algebra more than anyone has ever hated calculus, so I'm not going there. But the reality is, there are many doctrines in our lives that we feel like are not important enough to continue to think about and learn about and believe. We move on. And marriage and the goodness of God's creation, the goodness of food, are two of those areas that we just very easily, very easily slip from our minds. And I think it's because they're constant. They're everywhere, right? We don't, we don't sit down and meditate on the fact that we have a wife and kids and the goodness of it. And yet we should. We should think about these things. We should be grateful for them. Um, and in so doing, we will be nourished on the words. Uh, and then Paul continues on. Uh, so this is the first part of First Timothy. 
Um, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Um, there's some talk about what the trustworthy statement is here, right? This letter has many trustworthy statements, and you have to determine, is it what came before it? That's the trustworthy statement, or is it what comes after it? That is the trustworthy statement. I think the trustworthy statement is basically verse 8. Bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And if you just skip verse 9 and go directly to 10, for it is for this, and what is the this then? Godliness. For it is for godliness we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And so I believe that, you may disagree with me, but that's where I'm going, um, that godliness is what Paul is saying is the antidote to all of these things. How can we discipline ourselves to be godly? Godliness is the goal of the Christian life, Christ-likeness. This is what we are aiming for. And it's not so that we can earn something or so that God will pay us for something or that we can say we deserve something. But verse 10 says, it is because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men. This, this is the antidote to all these myths and fables. It's the antidote to those who forbid marriage and tell you to abstain from food. Godliness is the means by which you fight against it. Um, Paul says in Colossians, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why as if you were living in the world do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, and self-abasement, and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And so this is not new ground for Paul. He's not saying something he's never told anyone else before. This statement is true. Those who consistently only are worried about the outward appearance of things. Abstain from marriage. Abstain from food. Don't handle. Don't taste. Don't touch. Don't do. That is not all that godliness is. It is part of what godliness is, right? There are rules. There are things we may not touch, may not do. But the, the doctrine of demons makes it completely physical. And you can think about this. Um, if, you've, if you've read The Grace of Shame or read anything that Tim has written or heard anything Tim has talked about specifically with this forbidding of marriage, the, it's like reading the same thing over and over when you read these guys. They all say, just don't have homosexual sex. Just, that's the thing. Just don't do that. And then you're good. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. It has an appearance. It does have an appearance of godliness. 
It has the appearance of religion. But it is not godliness. Because God is not just concerned with outward things, right? When Paul talks back in 1 Timothy, and he says it is sanctified by the means of the word of God and prayer, the thanksgiving prayer, it is the heart that matters in the prayer. Right? You can pray a prayer. Right? My kids are into singing one of the like, uh, what is the one they sing now? God our Father, God our Father. Once again, we bow our heads and thank you. Amen. Do I think my kids are godly because they can say true things? No. Right? They, they did a form. They did a thing. But they don't, they don't even hardly understand the words they're singing. Half the time they get the words wrong. Right? They, they don't know the words. I'm constantly asking my kids, do you understand what that word means? No. Okay. Well, it means this. Do you understand what that word means? No. And then I just usually give up because I only have a thesaurus that's like two words deep in my head. So. But the reality is it's not about the outward even though it includes the outward. It is about the inward. And this is what is profitable, right? He says in verse 8, Godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. That godliness is not just chunking off the thing. Godliness is pervasive. It spreads throughout your life. And it is profitable for all things. It is not simply the abstaining, but the actual grateful overflow of a heart that knows that God is our Savior. This is what godliness is. It's what we should strive for. It's what we should aim for. Um, and it is based on the idea that we have fixed our hope on the living God. That it's not just for this life that godliness is profitable. But Paul says it's also for the, the life to come. The thing that happens after we die. Our godliness is for that. Right? We bring glory to God, not just here and now, but also there and then. And that is what we have to keep in mind. That God is our Savior. And that when we meet him, godliness will matter. Right? And then the final thing I will deal with quickly is Paul, a universalist. God is the savior of all men. Sit up on the... See, I'm telling you. Uh, da -da -da -da. Okay. Is God the savior of all men universally? Which is to say, are all men, are all people Christians, and will all people inherit the kingdom? Uh, this verse has historically been used by universalists, and it is, it is easy to see why, right? He literally says, God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And so, you can't simply ignore it and pretend like it's not a difficult problem which is part of not being a, a hypocrite or a liar about the word. You have to admit that this takes thought. I don't know that I have the whole answer, but I do think that there is 
a good chunk of it in just thinking through what common grace looks like to all men because of the gospel. And the gospel here is broad. The gospel is the goodness of God towards mankind. Right? And so, God is the Savior of all men. I'm missing part of my stuff. See? I'm telling you. Where's the... There should be stuff before 545. Um, I don't know if you know that or not, but that's... Oh, here we go. It's down at the bottom. Does God cause... Okay. I did get it in there. I just forgot to erase some things. Um, God is the Savior of all men. Now just think broadly about this. Just think about, again, going back to the very beginning. God said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Did Adam and Eve die physically on the day they ate the fruit? No. God was their Savior. And God promised to be their Savior through the seed of the woman. And then, their kids... Did they immediately die upon conception or upon birth? No. They lived long lives. Hundreds of years these men and women lived. God was kind to all of them. Right? Cain, who killed his brother, did not die the day he did it. Even though the blood of his brother cried up from the ground and God said a few chapters later, you are guilty of murder. You may not kill another man. Right? That's what he says to Noah. And yet God is gracious. He is a savior. He puts a mark on Cain, and Cain is not allowed to be killed by anyone until God decides it's time for him to die. This continues to our present day. God, in fact, does not strike all people dead when they, when, all people dead when they sin. He does strike some people dead when they sin. Still. There are still Ananias and Sapphira's out in this world, right? The, the warning that, you know, you have to think has actually happened against adultery is you may die in the act. God may take you in the act. That I'm sure has happened. There have been men and women caught in the act who have died in the act of committing adultery. You have to know that that is God's judgment. But you also have to know that God doesn't strike us dead immediately upon conception. And that is merciful, and that is a salvation. Does God cause it to rain on the just and the unjust? Yes, Jesus says this in Matthew 5.45. This is salvation. The fruitfulness of the ground, though cursed, is salvation. Think about what it is like to be in a famine. Severe famine, right? Think of starving third world countries. Does God save them? Yes. Every day that they don't die from the famine, from the starvation, is a day that God is saving them. In hopes, right, this is how Paul puts it, in hopes that they would see the kindness of God and repent. Right? And then the final thing, if it was universalism, if it actually meant that all people everywhere are saved, there would be no special unique way that believers uniquely are uh, belonging to God, and that God is our unique Savior. And this really is the best argument against this being a universalist passage. If it was all men everywhere are saved, justified, inheriting the kingdom, then Paul would not say, God is the Savior of all men, especially believers. 
And he is especially our Savior because he does not just not kill us physically. He does not just keep us alive physically. He keeps us alive eternally with God. And that is a unique gift that is not everyone's inheritance. And so I don't think it's universalism and we are out of time, so if you di- disagree or have questions, sorry, talk to Stephen next week. Um, thank you. I'll pray very quickly, and then we'll get going. Father, thank you for your grace. We thank you for your Son who saves us. And Father, we ask that you would make us grateful for the things you give us, that we would realize the goodness of marriage, the goodness of food. God, that you would help us to see myths and fables for what they are, and that we would reject them and that you would nourish us on your word, your good word, and that we would love it, and that our kids would love it, and that it would pass down from generation. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son. Amen.